good to be back. So we're in Matthew 15. So I'm going to open you, uh, uh, invite you to open your Bibles there. Um, my instructions were some, just pick up in Matthew 15. And so I kind of jumped over some stuff and landed in a spot that it's a bit of an unlikely spot, but I think God spoke to me pretty clearly about it. And I would be interested to know if God would speak to you this morning through this. So we'll find out, won't we? Uh, Matthew 15, verse 21, we're going to read a little exchange, and then we're going to give you some context, and then we're going to take it home, and hopefully uh, we'll hear from the Holy Spirit this morning. Verse 21, leaving that place, is it on the screen? Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. She's driving us crazy, right? He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came in, she knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Let's pray. Father, we invite the Holy Spirit to walk among us, to speak to us this morning, to reveal ourselves to ourselves. Show us you and then show us a glimpse of who we are. Teach us this morning in your name we pray. Amen. It's a strange little passage, isn't it? It's a special moment. It's an odd glimpse. It's a weird glimpse into the world of Jesus. And what I think we need to know as we go into this is that Jesus was exhausted. Do you know the feeling? Let's go back and very briefly I want to trace for you some of the preceding events that lead to this moment. Because I think we have to hold this all in context to realize what's going on. Right after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon of His Life, right? The great initial offering of the kingdom. He'd spent 30 years earning the right to be heard. He goes up to the side of a mountain and he lets it all fly. Flips the world upside down. Pours his heart out. If you've ever spoken the word or if you've ever spoken period, you know how draining that can be. Crowds immediately begin to follow. They start pressing him everywhere he goes. There's a crowd. He can't get away, right? Jesus calms the storm. You remember the little scene where he's on the boat? Right after the Sermon on the Mount and the whole deal, he does the deal. They wrap it up and he crosses over in a boat. And what happens? He falls asleep. Any guess why he fell asleep? He was completely exhausted. Thank you, Kimberly. You know, I don't think I've ever looked at it quite that way. I guess I thought, ah, you know, storm, no big deal. Jesus is Jesus. He's just going to blow it off. No, he's probably completely whipped. Falls asleep. He keeps trying to cross over the sea or the lake or however you want to look at that. And they, they keep doing this deal where he's like, let's go across. And as soon as he gets across, the people beat him there, right? And so there's no rest and recovery because the people are always outmaneuvering Jesus during this, this time in his ministry. He crosses over the sea. He, he heals the Gadarean demoniac. Remember that? He casts out the demons from, the, from this crazy dude who rattled chains in the graveyard. Literally, they, ar- they arrive to do nothing but that, and then they get back in the boat. They go back across. As soon as he gets there, he begins to teach in his hometown. This is where the paralytic is hauled in and lowered through the roof. You know the scene. Crowds need pressing on every side. Then he starts calling disciples. First First couple of things we see, he starts gathering a group around him. He calls Matthew and goes to sit at Matthew's house for a meal, and I'm imagining some R&R, right? Some time to be down and hang with his boys. And even there, 
people are pressing in. The tax collectors and the sinners are smushing into that private scene. No rest for Jesus. The woman with the issue of blood comes next. She touches him in a crowd, so packed. She touches him, and they have that little exchange, right? You know the, you know the story. We're up to chapter 9 now. Then he begins to teach his disciples. He pulls them aside. He does some private teaching and preparing in chapter 10. Chapter 11, he goes right back into ministering to the crowds. No discernible downtime. Chapter 12, it mentions that Jesus begins to scold the cities where he had done all of the ministries because there's this building awareness that he's spending all this time and nothing is, there's no fruit. He's healing the sick. He's touching the blind. He's healing, casting out demons in all of these towns. And they're starting to say, give us more action. Give us more of the stuff. Jesus scolds those towns because they're not listening to who he really is. Then Jesus gets scolded for picking grain on the Sabbath, which of course was the rest day, which of course they were traveling and walking and were hungry, so no rest on the rest day. You get the picture. Complete and utter exhaustion. Chapter 13 begins the parables, some of the most memorable parts of Scripture. Crowds are so large at this point that Jesus can't even speak to them. He's got to take a boat, pull offshore, and project his voice onto a hillside because the crowds are too big to even hear. Then John the Baptist is beheaded. Total and utter loss cousin of Jesus beheaded because a girl was dancing and tickled the fancy of the master and that's what she asked for on a platter. Stress levels rise. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000. He takes almost nothing and he feeds the entire gang. 5,000 people in an audience was quite an undertaking at that time. His thing is rising. His records are selling. His books are on Oprah. The moment is there, right? He feeds them with almost nothing. And in verse 22, Interesting, for the first time it says Jesus literally dismisses the crowd. At this point, he's so tired, he's saying, now go, go away, leave us alone. He orders the disciples to do their little charade. They cross the lake in a boat while he goes up onto a hill to pray alone. Even in that moment, they get stuck out in a storm in the sea. His rest is interrupted. You get the picture. It keeps getting worse. He's got to walk out on the water to rescue them from peril. He gets to the other side, once again, teaches the law, begin to confront him. And then there's this scene with the Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman. Now, it's the same pattern repeated over and over. Jesus ministers, he draws a crowd, he wants to get away. They follow him, he's moved with compassion. This is the texture of his public ministry. Okay, here's what I think. I think the crushing crowd was beginning to get to him, and more than just tired physically, Jesus was emotionally exhausted. Does that fit in your theology? Not sure. Jesus was Jesus. But he relinquished those things that made him other than a man in the sense that he was limited by the same cycles of fatigue as we are, right? I think there's good news if we can tap into that. Anybody exhausted? this? Don't raise your hand. Too much work. Feels to me like Jesus is completely exhausted emotionally, specifically because the crowd has been following him for what he has to offer. It's the bells and the whistles and the swag. It's not the lordship. It's not the listening. It's give us more stuff, Right? Just a few verses ago, have have you noticed this? When the woman presses in the crowd with the issue of blood and touches his garment, he stops the whole train and he says, hang on, somebody just, virtue just flowed from me. That's kind of a weird formulation. Basically, somebody just sucked something out of me, literally took something from me that I was not offering. Who was that? And she's nailed, right? She says, it's me. Interesting. Do Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like if you bump into one more person who sucks one more piece of life out of you, there's just not gonna be anything left? Maybe you don't feel that. The people around you that you love the most, that need you the most, 
sometimes feel like they're doing nothing but draining you. And if you could just put a door between you and the need, you could survive maybe. And it just doesn't work. Okay, so that's, you, you know who I'm talking to this morning. We've got five kids, so maybe I'm uniquely <laughs> tapped. But what's so amazing about this little weird little exchange that frankly I would have never, would have never chosen to preach on did it not fall to me by lots, essentially. What's so amazing is that Jesus acts just like me in this text. Finally, I can identify with this man who can feed the world, who can walk on water. I can identify because he cracks. He says something very similar to what I would say when people express a need. One more thing, right? This doesn't make the top ten list of most unforgettable exchanges with Jesus. It doesn't appear often in the lectionary. We don't have to preach this, right? I would have skipped it. You know, I I have a good friend who says, never evaluate someone on their worst day. That's good advice, isn't it? Never evaluate somebody on the day when they're just tapped out. He kind of lashes out. I don't know how to explain that. I wish I could say, well, there's a theological... No, he snaps. I'll confess I don't really know this side of Jesus. Frankly, Jesus sounds kind of normal here, right? Someone in his immediate vicinity needs something. What did she need? She needed her daughter to be healed. Is that so difficult? Could it be that because she was a Canaanite, she wasn't a Jew, that this was an issue? Jesus had been touching people all over the known world at the time. It didn't seem to matter to him. But he responds by, watch this, by drawing a circle and leaving her out of the circle. Essentially, I'm tapped, I'm tired, I'm drawing a circle, you're out, I'm ignoring you, talk to the hand. But she just won't have it, will she? She gets a foot in the door and she won't let the door slam in her face. Let me ask you this, this is an open question. At ANC, we like to dialogue, so don't freak out if people start talking. What was so special about the way the woman addresses Jesus in verse 22? She calls him, son of David, have mercy on me. What's so special about that? Anyone? Who said that? She wasn't Jewish, right? Excellent. David was, somebody give me some historical placement of who David was. Anyone? He was not only a king, but he was Israel's greatest king, wasn't he? He was the king that represented the gilded era, the gilded age of Israel, right? And she, an outsider, calls him son of David. What does that mean? Okay, so she was going far enough to say, all right, Mr. Average Rabbi building a big following, you're the rabbi. You are it, right? Calling him son of David, nobody, nobody took that title on themselves, right? Anybody else? What is she effectively saying? let, Let me ask you this. What is she saying that the crowds that are following him simply aren't saying? You getting it, somebody? Mike drop Christy. Mike drop Christy. Of course, Christy has to drop the, the moment. Do you get that? I believe in you, not just the things you do and the things you give us. She catapults way forward here. Now listen, there would have been an enormous chasm of difference between the ministry of David, the life of David, and the ministry of Jesus at this point. It wasn't terribly obvious to all of the onlookers that this actually was the one they were waiting for because he did strange things and he didn't do it the way they expected, right? There was a gap But not everybody at the time, very few had that revelation that he was the man. In fact, some of his disciples, his own cousin, until his almost, well, in his prison cell, right before he dies, wondered. Because they're trying to match up the David concept, the restore of the kingdom of David, and this Jesus rabbi guy who nobody could quite make out. And most of them are coming up with a gap saying, I don't know. It doesn't look like the guy. And then a Canaanite woman presses through the crowd and says, 
son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus was somewhat normal. Of course, we see through the lens of history. We know he's God, right? We, that's what we confess. But they didn't have the vantage point of history. They didn't have the privilege to be able to make that determination. It took the church centuries to wrap itself around how it was that God was Jesus and God at the same time. And we're still laughed at in most world religions the way we make sense of it. It's what we hold true. He was different, but he was us. He was man, but he was God. And she gets it. This is where I want to camp out today. There's a lot of places we could go. Here's what I want to camp out with. In this deeply human exchange between this outsider and Jesus, divine revelation is affirmed. And for once, it's not coming from Jesus. It's coming from her. She's the one identifying the bottom line. I can still remember where I was and how old I was the first time somebody had faith enough to see something in me and call it to the fore, call it to the surface. I was a preteen, right? I, had, I wasn't even, well, my dad was a youth pastor, so I got to hang out with the youth group. But I was just a little add-on, you know. Anybody ever grew up in that space? I thought I was a big kid. I was 11 or whatever, 12. Wasn't quite in the youth group, but I couldn't stay home alone, so I had to do all the things the youth group did. And I still remember the time we went to an event. I think it was, I won't date myself. Anyway, it was important. We got back, and the pastor pulled me aside and said, I want you to pray for the church, and I want you to lead us in some worship. And I was probably 12 years old. I, I could take you to the place on Sanibel Island, Florida. I could, the church still stands there. I could take you to the, to the pew, because we still had pews in the 80s, where my life, somebody saw something in me and called it to the surface, and it radically changed everything else. It was a risk. It was a bit of faith. It changed my life. He spoke something into existence. I'm in contact with him to this very day because I owe him a debt because he saw something early, right? Most of you guys don't know what I actually do for a living other than hang out here. Somebody bumped into me recently and said, oh, are you actually sticking around? We actually live here. We do. We've been here almost two years. Most of you don't know what I do on the side. I have a side gig, right? I work for the denomination to which we belong as a church, to which I might, I might add, they're incredibly proud of who we are. We're not like most of them. We're a bit out on the fringe, a little more progressive. But they're very, very proud, and everybody speaks so highly of what Austin New Church does. But I direct an office of ministerial development and credentialing for our denomination, which basically is, I won't go into the details, we build the system through which people walk and journey on their way to ordained vocational ministry. So if you are a young person who says, God is calling me to do something different with my life, we, have, we build that apparatus that moves you through those years and that education that gets you to that point of being ordained at the, at the end. Okay. I won't go into the details, other than to say that the entire system hangs on this concept alone. You ready? We build spaces where people see people. Bottom line. Where things are called out of people that God himself deposited in them. And there are just a few things on the surface that cover that if we could just move them away and ask the right questions, the person emerges. We call things to the surface. Question for you. What would happen... If you only saw and only said what Jesus sees and says. In one place in scriptures, Jesus says, I only do and see what the Father does and says. What would happen to us as a people, as parents, as husbands, as wives, as children, if we only saw what Jesus sees and we only said what Jesus says? How would those around you be impacted? Somebody interact with that. Anyone? 
Greater purpose? Someone else? Takes us. You'd feel less shame? Or people would feel less shame? Did you guys hear that? We would feel less shame, and the people we speak to and hang with and do life with would feel less shame. Does that shame come from Jesus? Not so much, right? Last week in Orlando at part of this conference, I had a privilege of speaking to 300 people about to go out on a missions trip. So it was the night before they all went all over Latin America, and they were going to Haiti and Costa Rica, Antigua, Dominican Republic, Miami, which is might as well be Cuba or Latin America. And they were going all over the place. There was several hundred of them. And this is, this is my encouragement to them. Go where you're going and see only what Jesus sees and say only what Jesus says about it. About the people you encounter, but also about yourself as you encounter that struggle to sort of figure out how are you going to enmesh with this. You see the difference? You see how simple that is? Here's, what, here's a couple of things that that implies. This is, for me, becoming really the grid of ministry and life. A couple of things. Number one, you're going to have to tune your eyes and ears to what Jesus is seeing and saying in your world. And that takes work. That's not terribly intuitive. It wasn't terribly intuitive to the people of Jesus' time, and it still isn't for us, right? We have to do the work of tuning other things out so that we can hear and we can see what Jesus is doing and saying and seeing in our world. And number two, and here's the hard one, we have to do the work to hear what he's doing and seeing, but we also have to stop saying a lot of what we're saying. Stuff we love to say. We have to stop seeing a lot of what we're seeing. Things we love to see. We think it's our role in the world. We think it's our role in the church. We think it's up to us to decide what's in and what's out. We draw the circles, and we claim Jesus told us to. And the net result is self-righteousness and isolation. There's a lot of things we want to say that we're going to have to leave unsaid if we're going to be the people of Jesus in the world. In my experience, and I work with about a 1,000 churches here in the States that are trying to figure this out, this is where churches get stuck, isn't it? This is where we get stuck. Some churches spend an awful lot of time, if not most of their time, seeing sin and proclaiming judgment over the people who are part of the cultural context that we're supposed to be reaching. And all they feel is judgment because all we want to talk about is sin. And so it's a very provocative way of doing life and ministry to say, let's just do and see what Jesus does and sees. If this challenges your theology, and if you say, well, that's not really in the text, I just want to remind you, the great seer of people is Jesus himself. It just so happens in this little context, the roles flip. Jesus is the one who could be in a crowd of people doing whatever he's doing, and a woman caught in adultery, clearly, easily convicted by the law. No problem, in and out, done deal, let's go have lunch. This woman needs to be stoned to death in the in in front of everyone else. And Jesus sees something entirely different, doesn't he? If you were following Jesus in that scene, the first thing Jesus sees is self-righteousness in the the accusers and he sees a future for this young woman who by all accounts became a major player in the new church. Did you know that? In the early church. She was one of, one of of, of a select group of women who were major players, benefactors, underwriters, supporters of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus released them from the scandal of their life and saw something different. Jesus was the seer of people. It's the, it's the Jesus I love most. Jesus approaches the shore and sees a couple of ragtag fishermen, right? Smelling like fish. 
up early in the morning to go catch that first catch. His name is Peter. Jesus sees the rock on which he would build his church. Nobody saw that in Peter. This is my Jesus. This is the Jesus that sees people deeply. Probably the hardest one to get our head around is the thief on the cross. What in the world did Jesus see in that guy? And what did he proclaim over that man on his left or on his right? I don't remember which side it was. He says, before this is all over, you and I are going to hang in paradise, you and me. Scandalous. He didn't, could he not see that this man was guilty? Could he not say some kind of condemnatory thing over this man? But he didn't, did he? Zacchaeus, chicken liver hanging in a tree, traitor, made his money out of exchanging currency to his own advantage, scandal. He, he exploited people's need to worship. <laughs> and he would exchange the money to an advantage. Jesus calls him down on a tree and says, I'm going to eat with you. You're not short little dude who's, who everybody hates. You are host to the Messiah, to the Son of God tonight. So get your house ready. So if this theology for you is a little scandalous, a little upside down, just remember the most profound thing Jesus gave us was the gift of seeing earth the way God sees earth. Not as this awful thing that needs to be bashed and corrected and just be obliterated, but God comes to earth in the man, Jesus Christ, and says, the deepest thing that can be said about the earth is that I want it back, all of it. All of them. All of you. Getting excited. I need to chill out. All right, let's get back to our text. Take a deep breath. So a woman, an outsider, saw something in Jesus in a moment of fatigue. She called it out. And she changed in mid-sentence what was initially a harsh response into the answer that she so wanted. I don't know about you, but I'm relieved that even Jesus was subject to fatigue. Even Jesus needed the downtime. Even Jesus needed from time to time to hear the voice of faith calling from him those things that were buried beneath the exhaustion. Even Jesus needed encouragement. Is that good news to you? I don't know if it's good news to you, but it's good news to me. Maybe it's just been a really exhausting 10 days. (laughs) Maybe that's the lens. Listen to me. Listen to me clearly. You're a good mom. You are a good mom. You're a good dad. You're a good father. You're a good friend. This thing that you're going through right now, it's not permanent. It's only a season. It's only a season. Hang on. Rest is coming, right? But in the meantime, hear me clearly. You have what it takes to do this. I don't know what that is for you. But you got this. You can do this. Somebody needs to hear that today. Somebody needs to hear that God has confidence in the outcome. You're going to make it. It's going to be all right. Deep down inside, deeper than the exhaustion and the fatigue, beneath the distraction and the short temper, is a you that can be pulled back to the surface with the right words from those around you. That's what I see in this passage. She stopped everything and said, I see something in you. You are that man. You are the son of David. I don't care what you can do or can't do, but you are the person that we have been waiting for. And Jesus goes from angry to your faith has solved the deal. And the jaws of the disciples must have just dropped because she was not from the hometown. This was not supposed to happen for her this way. 
here's what I really want to see us become as a community of believers here at ANC. I'm tired of waiting for it to happen. I want it to happen. I want to see this. I want to see this. I want to see it. I want to be a people who see each other in our small groups, in our classrooms, in our conversations, when we're together in the marketplace, when we eat after church, when we're in worship, that see each other with eyes of faith, that see potential, that don't get hung up on the reality. It's only temporary. I want to be the people who see each other profoundly. What does this mean for you as a parent? What if you could see that thing in your child? Not the behavior. It's not behavior, guys. Not the tantrum. That's not where the bouncing ball is at. Not the acting out. Not the distractibility. What if you could see the soul and you could summon it to the surface with the right graceful words? Would that not be winning the game of parenting? Would that not be what we're looking for? How can we see past the presenting issue? Because it's so frustrating. But if we see with the eyes of Jesus, we would see past it. And if we spoke to it like Jesus speaks to us, something would change. What if we did this as as spouses? You know, the initial eyes that attracted you to your spouse were the eyes of attraction, right? It's great stuff. It's 21 years ago for us. That's not going to keep you together. But what if I could see my wife the way Jesus sees my wife? And what if all of my words were directed at summoning that beautiful, beautiful thing buried deep within all the fatigue and exhaustion and distraction? What if I could summon that to the service with the right words of grace? Then how good is your marriage? You tell me. Then who walks away to find something else? Are you kidding me? Starting over after all these years? No, no. We see each other and say about what we see, what Jesus sees and says about us. It's never judgment. It's never harsh. What would this mean for us as leaders? If we saw each other as the leaders that we're becoming instead of the leaders that we are? If we saw each other as the friends that are becoming, not the ones that are in the moment? So there you have it. The Canaanite woman and a beautiful little exchange, a beautiful little human exchange with Jesus. If you're hoping for something deep and crunchy theological this morning, some great revelation, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize. All I have for you is this little glimpse into the moment that summoned to the surface what fatigue had buried. And I want you to remember those thoughts. Words can pull from deep within what fatigue and exhaustion has buried. And I think that's hopeful for us. It's hopeful for me. That's what I'm hanging on to today.